The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled in the case of Halbig v. Burwell that the IRS regulation authorizing tax credits in federal health insurance exchanges was invalid. The decision shows that the Affordable Care Act does not work as advertised. Could this lead to the collapse of Obamacare? Cato's Director of Health Policy Studies, Michael Cannon, will discuss the latest developments, chart the next moves, and take your questions next. Hello and welcome to this Cato Institute Sponsor E-Briefing. I'm Caleb Brown, Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Today I'm joined by Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, Michael has been instrumental in developing legal challenges to Obamacare, including the Halbig case. Uh, one publication called Michael the intellectual godfather of Halbig, and a commentator just this weekend on a Sunday talk show uh, characterized Cannon as a winner of the week and also one of two lonely guys just a few years ago when this discovery about Obamacare had just been made. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me, Caleb. And I want to thank all of the Cato Institute sponsors for making our work possible. Uh, insofar as we achieve victories like the Halbig ruling, they're really yours. We could not do this without you. And, and, and we thank you for your support of Cato over all these years. All right. So to get involved in this conversation, you can add your questions into the chat room and I'll do my best to get to as many of them as possible over the course of the next half hour or so. So uh, as was mentioned this weekend on TV, you were one of two lonely guys, the other lonely guy being <laughs> Jonathan Adler, uh, who had made this discovery about some of the requirements of Obamacare. Um, how was this case received when it was filed and even when the idea was just being developed? Well, it was, a, it was a, a, an editorial writer for the Washington Post named Chuck Lane who called us winners of the week because when we first made these arguments, we were like that, you know, the proverbial voices in the wilderness. No one believed what we were saying about what the statute actually says, but we did – we read the statute. We looked at the legislative history. We found that Congress intended for well, – the statute, first of all, was clear that the president only has the authority to subsidize health insurance through exchanges, quote, established by the state. And that – and do, researching the legislative history, uh, we found that actually Congress meant to do this. It was quite reasonable that, to, uh, that they did this, at least in, from their point of view. Lots of Proposals that have been put before Congress did very similar things. And so we learned about this. Really, Jonathan and I didn't discover this provision of the statute. We learned about it because uh, an attorney in private practice named Tom Christina talked about it at, a, at an American Enterprise Institute event. And Jonathan learned about it there, brought it up with me. And I, I, I may have been the first person really to see the full potential here. Because what this provision of the law does is it gives states the ability to veto major parts of Obamacare, not just the subsidies in the exchanges, but also the employer mandate. A state that decides not to establish an exchange effectively blocks the employer mandate in a state, frees its employers from that tax, and could lure employers from other states that have established an exchange where they would face that tax. So uh, – I had already been encouraging states not to implement this law. If you remember back in 2011, we had the individual mandate cases that were making their way through the courts. Uh, at least one judge struck down the entire law based on the unconstitutionality of the individual mandate. I was encouraging states not to implement the law with the hope that maybe the Supreme Court would strike it down or maybe a, a future Congress or future president would, would repeal it. 
When I learned about this, however, I realized that this was another opportunity to get rid of Obamacare because if enough states exercised those vetoes over these provisions of the law, then here's what would happen. That blocking those health insurance subsidies wouldn't increase anyone's premiums at all. What it would do is expose to consumers the full cost of the Obamacare exchange plan premiums that the law requires them to purchase. And because they would face the full cost of all those hidden taxes and regulations, they would demand that their members of Congress reopen this law. So what nobody expected when they were debating and passing Obamacare was that 36 states would refuse to establish exchanges. And what that means is that you've got two-thirds of the country where if the president were implementing the law as written, we would have that huge backlash against its regulatory costs. We would have Democratic members of Congress changing their tune on whether to open, uh, reopen the law and possibly even repeal it. But because the president issued those subsidies in federal exchanges anyway, because as the D.C. Circuit ruled last week, he was spending that money illegally. He was altering that political equilibrium. He's creating a new one where uh, members of Congress were insulated from the, the uh, responsibility for their decisions, where they weren't being pushed by their constituents to reopen this law, and probably where some Democratic members of Congress held on to their seats in 2012 and might hold on to them in 2014, where they wouldn't if the president were implementing the law as written and as he is obligated to do by oath. Uh, by his oath of office. So uh, this this issue, this case, Halbig v. Burwell and the three companion cases are actually much larger than Obamacare. They're about whether the president of the United States is in fact the president of the United States and subject to the constitution or whether he can tax and borrow and spend just like an autocrat. All right. As you said in your uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed with Jonathan Adler, Halbig v. Burwell is about determining whether the president like an autocrat can levy taxes on his own. Uh, I want to quote from uh, the opinion that was uh, produced last week uh, in Halbig v. Burwell. Uh, they, they write, we conclude that appellants have the better of the argument. A federal exchange is not an exchange established by the state and Section 36B does not authorize the IRS to provide tax credits for insurance purchased on federal exchanges. That seems fairly clear. And that's about all there is to the case, really. If you look at the relevant parts of the statute, they're perfectly clear. The eligibility rules for these tax credits say that they're only available through an exchange established by the state, says that more than once, and then refers to that language several more times. It never mentions a federal exchange or even any vague language like an exchange. And so the government's entire case has been – the government doesn't even call this a drafting error, by the way. They, they Not even the government makes that argument. Their entire case is – uh, based on trying to find some ambiguity in the statute because if there's ambiguity, then the courts generally defer to an agency interpretation of the statute if it's permissible. And so that would be the IRS right here. But there just isn't any ambiguity. There's a, there's a desperate search for ambiguity because the administration senses that this would threaten the law by exposing its full cost to people. But you know, I could walk through all the, all the arguments that they've made to try to establish ambiguity. But all they've really done is find parts of the law that would be consistent with a different set of eligibility rules for those tax credits. But there's nothing there that's inconsistent with the rules, with the rules as they exist. So there's no ambiguity. A lot of the uh, debate in public uh, about this law, which is it's very different from a lot of what was argued in court, relies on what, how were people talking about this in uh, in public right. and in hearings? So again, from right. the 
from the opinion in Halbig v. Burwell, we begin by clarifying the role of the ACA's legislative history might play in our analysis. Legislative history is a means to an end to be consulted for evidence of congressional intent, but legislative history is not the sole or even the primary source of such evidence. Rather, the most reliable guide to congressional intent is the legislation that Congress enacted. Because when you've got 218 people in the House and 51 or 60 people in the Senate all voting for a piece of legislation, they don't all have one intent. They, they all have lots of different things that they want or expect to get out of the legislation. So you can, you can pick and choose what uh, some people wanted out of this legislation and try to come, uh, try to come up with a law that Congress never passed. And that's actually what's, what's happening here. Uh, the important thing to understand about the legislative history is that ev there's very little legislative history on this specific point. And the reason for that, uh, the specific question of did Congress authorize tax credits or subsidies through exchanges established by the federal government? There's very little on that question because of a pervasive assumption that every state would establish an exchange. No one questioned that – almost no one questioned that assumption so, assumption, so there's no debate about it. What does – so that's the first thing. The second thing is what legislative history does exist on that question fully supports the statute, fully supports the language restricting tax credits to ex exchanges established by the state. And as – even though the administration says and other supporters of the administration say that it was clearly Congress's intent to authorize these subsidies through federal exchanges, they have not been able to identify a single contemporaneous statement from any member of Congress to that effect, not one. They've had three years to look for that sort of a statement. They have not found a single one. Now, the people who wrote the law have since said, well, that was always our intent all along. Well, you know, they have a big incentive to change their story now that they realize that that, that feature isn't working. But I like to bring up the case of if you like your health plan, you can keep it. They all said, if you like your health plan, you can keep it. They all they said that contemporaneously as well. But what members of Congress say is not the law. And it is and even it doesn't even indicate what their intent was, because their intent was clearly not to let you keep your health plan if it conflicted with the provisions of the statute. All right. Uh, we have a question from a sponsor, and this relates to a case that was decided uh, at a fourth district, a federal court just a few hours after the, the Halbig ruling. Was the issue in King v. Burwell the same as that in Halbig v. Burwell? If so, doesn't the don't the different rulings in those cases complicate things? Well, it does and it doesn't. They, they, they are the same issues. They're, uh, uh, it's exactly the same issue. In fact, the cases were brought by the same attorneys. Uh, uh, they, they brought it, the case in both the District of Columbia and the Eastern District of Virginia, because the Eastern District of Virginia, Virginia is known for being uh, for having the rocket docket for moving things, uh, moving cases through the, uh, their system rapidly. Uh, it, com it, it doesn't really complicate things. It certainly complicated the uh, the 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 narrative about the Halbig case. It was uh, awfully convenient, or I should say, a startling coincidence that the fourth circuit issued their ruling an hour and a half after uh, their ruling upholding the IRS's actions, it, an hour and a half after the DC circuit issued its ruling invalidating uh, or uh, vacating the IRS's regulation. Uh, but as far as its impact on the future of these cases, uh, it doesn't change it very much. It gives 
Uh, it would certainly be better if the Fourth, Fourth Circuit had ruled the same way as the D.C. Circuit. But uh, now the plaintiffs in the Fourth Circuit have the opportunity to appeal either all the way to the Supreme Court or to the full Fourth Circuit, just as the government is planning on doing in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and there's a good chance that the Supreme Court will take the case because right now you have a circuit split. You have the D.C. Circuit going one way and the Fourth Circuit going another. Uh, Marshall asks, uh, when do you forecast the cases will be heard by SCOTUS and their decision rendered? The earliest would be uh, June of 2015. But these cases could get resolved in a number of ways and some of them don't even involve the Supreme Court. So it depends on uh, – whether the losers in these cases appeal to the full D.C. Circuit and Fourth Circuit, the, the government has said that it will do that in the case it lost in the D.C. Circuit. Then, it, then uh, those those uh, full the, the full uh, D.C. and Fourth Circuits could decide to he, grant an en banc review or not. And then it also depends uh, – or the, the litigants could appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court may or may not take those cases. Uh, if the government wins its appeal to the uh, full D.C. Circuit, then that could eliminate the split and the Supreme Court might not take the case. But there are two more cases in Oklahoma and in, in Indiana that could ultimately create a circuit split and then the Supreme Court might revisit that decision. So it could play out in a lot of different ways. But the earliest I think that anything could happen would be around June of next year. All right. Uh, comment from a sponsor, more than a question here. But uh, one sponsor says, uh, certainly this revelation provides a clearer appreciation of Nancy Pelosi's snarky remark to the effect of, we need to pass this legislation to find out what's in it. How many other revelations are likely to be discovered like this one? Well, there are all sorts of problems with this law. I mean, the uh, and this isn't the first time the, pre the president has spent money without congressional authorization to protect this law from democratic accountability. The first time happened before the ink was dry on the law when people realized that having passed this law, they now threw members of Congress out of, out of their own health plans. The, the statute is pretty clear about that, that they cannot get health insurance through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program anymore. But the president said, we're just going to ignore that part. And they le let members of Congress stay in their plans. You may have heard more recently that as of the beginning of this year, when, the, when members of Congress were supposed to go into Obamacare's exchanges, they let members of Congress keep the employer contribution to their health plans that they right now get through their – or that they used to get through FEHBP, the uh, – the health plan for federal employees. They had no authority to do that either. But they were worried that – as they were worried right after the law was passed, if members of Congress get thrown out of their health plans, if their staff get thrown out of their health plans or suffer that pay cut of losing that contribution, then even – then Congress, not just Republican members of Congress, but Democratic members of Congress will want to reopen this law. So the president instead decided to just throw some money that he had no authority to, uh, to spend at Congress to essentially buy, buy their votes and keep them from reopening the law. All right. Chad asks, my state, Ohio, has adopted Obamacare. What can concerned citizens in those states do now? Well, you have and you haven't, Chad. The, your, your governor has said that he's going to uh, expand the Medicaid program, which is implementing part of the law. But you're one of the 36 states that has opted not to establish a health insurance exchange. So you're one of the states where Halbig would have an impact. And it's not just that the residents of your state would, uh, would lose the illegal subsidies that they're now receiving. There are employers and individuals in your state who are being subject to the uh, employer and individual mandate taxes 
without any congressional authorization. Those illegal subsidies trigger those illegal taxes. And so if Halbig sticks, then you will uh, – then those subsidies and those taxes will disappear. And the, and the taxes affect about 10 times as many people as the subsidies do. All right. Uh, because we have a question on it, I'm going to read this quote uh, here that we have prepared. I think what's important to remember politically about this is that you're, if you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax credits. But your citizens still pay the taxes to support the bill. So you're essentially saying to your citizens, you're going to pay all the taxes to help all the other states in the country. I hope that's blatant enough a political reality that states will get their act together and realize there are billions of dollars at stake here in setting up these exchanges and that they'll do it. That's Jonathan Gruber, uh, January 2012, credited to be one of the architects of this law. There's really no one who understands uh, uh, this law or had uh, uh, more input into its structure than Jonathan Gruber did. I mean, he is, he he brags that he knows the law better than any econ any other economist does. He brags that he actually wrote parts of this law, and it's credible. I mean, people believe him when he said that because he helped to both write and implement Romney Care in Massachusetts in two, uh, 2006. And for that reason, they drew on his expertise when Congress and the uh, congressional Democrats and the president were putting together Obamacare in 2009 and 2010. In fact, he was a paid advisor to the Obama administration and the New York Times reported that they lent him to members of Congress so that he could help to write the bill. So when he – and, and lately, he's been deriding the uh, the 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 argument that the plaintiffs in Halbig make, which is that those tax credits are only available through an exchange established by the state. But in that quote from 2012, before this provision of the law became politically problematic, before they knew that 36 states would refuse to establish exchanges, Professor Gruber didn't have any problem with the plain language of the law. He seemed to understand it perfectly well. So, uh, so he has had a change of heart and uh, uh, it's an open question as to why. It certainly doesn't look good. But I think it uh, when he – now, supporters of the administration have said, well, he's not a member of Congress, so that's not indicative of congressional intent. Well, that's true. But a couple of things about that. One, the plain language of the statute is the most reliable guide to congressional intent and even, even Gruber agreed as to what that said. And two, Gruber knows more about this law than most members of Congress do and probably uh, more, had more input into drafting it than most members of Congress did. Uh, and so, so this isn't something that, that the uh, administration and its defenders can just dismiss lightly. Uh, in fact, it raises – because he was so heavily involved in writing this law and implementing it that it raises the question of were there other people – was he talking to other people in the administration, in Congress who shared that understanding of how the law works? Uh, I think that's something that bears further investigation. Uh, Jeff Singer asks a question related to that quote. Uh, will the recent publication of Gruber on YouTube supporting the plaintiff's case and contradicting his own amicus brief be able to be employable in some way upon uh, review, further review of the case? Well, it doesn't qu – it doesn't – quite contradict his, his amicus brief. It, it does uh, – he, he does argue against himself. But there's still a possibility that he changed his mind uh, about whether this was a plausible reading of the statute or not. So I, I guess you could say it contradicts the uh, amicus brief, but um, uh, it contradicts those arguments. Uh, will this have any effect on the on the on the on the courts? It's not supposed to because he's not a member of Congress, and even what members of Congress say isn't supposed to affect their rulings when the when the statute is clear. But 
the it, it definitely affects the atmospherics. It affects the narratives, and uh, it, it would be hard for uh, members of the D.C. Circuit or the Fourth Circuit of the Supreme Court to to avoid learning about this, uh, the fact that one of the law's architects said exactly what the plaintiffs in these cases are saying. And so even though it's not supposed to uh, influence the judges, it certainly could. All right. Uh, Steve asks, what is on Bonk Review? Oh, Steve, on Bonk Review, I'm sorry about that. It's, uh, there are 11, uh, on the DC circuit, for example, there are 11 uh, active judges. But the panel, the three, uh, Halbig was heard by a three-judge panel. And so when the three-judge panel ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, and if the loser wants to, they can appeal that ruling to the entire uh, 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 11 judges on the D.C. Circuit. In fact, the, that en banc panel would include two additional judges, senior judges who were part of the first uh, three-judge panel. So that's what en banc review is. You just get to uh, put your case before more judges than the last time. Uh, a guest in our chat room asks, Oregon attempted to implement a state exchange and it failed. Ultimately, Oregon citizens will be directed to the federal exchange. Uh, what are the implications of Halbig for Oregonians? Well, this is this is an interesting question because there's some uh, dis well misunderstanding more than dispute over how many states have established their own exchanges and how many have an exchange established by the federal government. Oregon's an interesting case. These are usually counted among the 14 states that established an exchange because they passed legislation saying we're going to establish an exchange. But that's not, that's not enough under federal law. According to the PPACA, Obamacare, you have to do that, but then you also have to get your exchange up and running and it has to be functional. Because if it isn't, the secretary has to come in and establish an exchange within your state. She doesn't have any discretion. The law requires her to do that. And when she does that, that is an exchange established by the federal government. Likewise, Idaho and New Mexico sort of did the same thing. They were not able to get they, – they passed the legislation, but they couldn't get the exchange up and running. So they contracted with the federal government to run their exchange. They contracted with healthcare.gov. Well, Obamacare specifies with whom a state-established exchange can contract and the federal government is not one of those parties. So if the federal government is running that part of the exchange, it is an exchange established by the federal government. And so the short answer to the, to the question is that uh, Oregon might be affected by Halbig because they have, they have not complied with the law and they, if they have an exchange, it is a federally established exchange. All right. If you've got any questions, please uh, put them into the chat room and we'll try to get to them. We're going to take a few more minutes here. A related question to that with respect to Oregon, you said that Oregon uh, passed a law but did not properly implement their exchange. Right. Kentucky did the opposite. They didn't. <laughs> they right. didn't. That's they right. didn't pass a law, but they did set up the exchange. There's there's every reason to believe that 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 uh, law might have failed in the Kentucky Senate. Right. So your home state. So that's another interesting dimension of this. One way that uh, the supporters of the administration have talked about responding to Halbig is by encouraging the. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services to change the regulations so that any state can establish an exchange simply by having the governor or who knows, maybe an insurance commissioner issue an order creating an exchange. The problem with that is that the federal government doesn't get to decide who speaks for the state. State law decides who speaks for the state. So I haven't looked up uh, 
what the law in Kentucky says. It may be that under the Constitution or uh, state law that the Commonwealth of Kentucky gives the, the governor the power to establish government agencies in order to comply with federal incentives or laws or, or what have you. Um, but if not, if that's not the case, then there are citizens, there are residents of Kentucky and employers in Kentucky who, if Hall Big prevails, would be able to bring a similar cause of action against the IRS claiming that the IRS cannot penalize them under the individual and employer mandates because Kentucky does not have an exchange established by the state because the governor never had the authority to speak for the state in these matters. Um, What's most troubling here to me is that HHS might try to issue a regulation that essentially redefines state to mean what HHS thinks it should mean rather than what the Constitution and our federalist system uh, um, understand it to mean, which is that the, the laws of the state which are written by the state itself decide who speaks for that state. It's really a sort of commandeering that they're talking about. Uh, we've got a few more questions here, but uh, one more uh, is that the public debate or the public discussion uh, after Halbig and after King is how many millions of people will be uh, have their coverage jeopardized. And as far as I can tell, you're the only person going around making the argument, well, but there are hundreds of thousands of employers and many millions more Americans who will not be subject to federal penalties if Halbig is successful. That's right. So, and the, and the numbers are totally lopsided. The people whom the, the president is subjecting to taxes without congressional authorization is more than 10 times as large as the number of people he is subsidizing without congressional authorization. So yes, some people would lose subsidies, but, and that will be painful. Uh, but subsidies don't reduce health care costs. They increase health care costs. And illegal subsidies are far worse than legal subsidies are, and so they should disappear. And if that causes dislocation, it's the fault of the president of the United States for issuing those subsidies without any congressional authorization. Inducing people to buy insurance with subsidies, it could dis disappear with a single court ruling. Uh, and moreover, you're, you will be uh, freeing not exempting because the law already exempts them, but freeing more than 10 times as many people from the individual and employer mandates. We were talking about Ohio before and so I looked up the numbers for Ohio. Uh, in Ohio right now, the president is subjecting to the individual mandate tax 386,000 residents that he has, he has no authority to subject to that tax. And when it comes to employers in Ohio, he is subjecting 13,000 – more than 13,000 employers and 3.4 million employees to the employer mandate tax, again, without congressional authorization. So the, the numbers are totally lopsided. A lot more people are being subject to these illegal taxes than are receiving illegal subsidies. All right. Uh, Phil asks if this ruling should hold up and the ACA enters a death spiral, where do we end up? I don't think it'll get there because uh, Congress will reopen the law. I mean, people will see the uh, the death spiral coming. When people are exposed to the full cost of their premiums, they'll demand that their members of Congress act. All right. Jim asks, we have an election in 100 days and another in just over two years. Uh, how does the timing of the appeals and likely rulings meet up with national political debates? Well, again, it depends. We don't know when this is uh, going to play out and at what level, but it could happen that we get a definitive ruling in the 2016 presidential election cycle. Uh, 
Uh, Fred asks, uh, the language in the law on this issue seems plain on its face. By what logic did the Fourth Circuit, the panel of the Fourth Circuit, arrive at its conclusion? And we should be clear, they chose to defer Right. They, they decided that the statute was ambiguous, which means that the government, the government lost ground relative the, to at the rulings at the district level, which one of the, which said that the, it was, uh, the language unambiguously favored the government's interpretation. Basically, what the Fourth Circuit said was that because the statute defined an exchange as ha- all exchanges as having been established by the state, uh, that created some ambiguity about whether a federal exchange was established by the state. But in fact, the provision it relied upon was not a definition at all. It's the, the heading for that provision was requirement. And then it said an ex, uh, one of the requirements of an exchange is, is that an exchange shall be established by a state. Uh, and, and that doesn't define all exchanges as having been established by the state because another section of the law said, no, these are established by the federal government. But it's because the court uh, misconstrued that provision as a definition that they came up with this ambiguity. All right. Uh, Craig asks, uh, from what I've recently read, states are concerned about losing uh, these illegal subsidies and are scrambling to find excuses or ways in which to include their arrangement uh, of state exchanges to include pieces of help from a federal exchange. Uh, This is a way to get around the recent D.C. ruling, even though the subsidies will be paid while this is being litigated. How might these states try and get around this D.C. ruling? or future SCOTUS ruling? Well, basically establishing an exchange themselves. But it's a very difficult thing to do because they have to uh, they have to either pass some legislation or have some pre-existing legislation on the books that gives the governor the authority to, uh, to establish an exchange, to speak for the state. They have to appoint an exchange board. They have to fund the exchange, which means imposing taxes or cutting spending for other services, which is very difficult. And even if all of that were easy, Getting an exchange up and running is very difficult. The federal government had a very hard time. States are still having a very hard time. It's a huge political headache and a lot of uh, states will be loath to do that, especially if they're hearing from employers and individuals who are saying, hey, wait, we don't want you to, vo- to, uh, to impose these taxes on us. Why would we sign up for these taxes? All right. Our last question today. In practical terms, this is from uh, sponsor DM Lucy. In practical terms, will the D.C. Circuit decision have any actual effect on the continued implementation of the Affordable Care Act before a SCOTUS decision or or refusal to decide is issued. And again, worth noting here, the president said, we're going to continue issuing subsidies. Well, the president has said that. The, the ruling has been stayed pending an appeal. But if the, if the, uh, if the full D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court refuse to hear the government's appeal, then that ruling does in the D.C. Circuit does take effect. So even though the Fourth Circuit upheld the IRS's regulation, that ruling would take effect. And so that's why supporters of the law are so very nervous. I mean, even though it doesn't have any immediate, immediate impact, it could. And it could be the, the final word. It's unlikely that the D.C. Circuit's three-judge panel will have the final word here, but it is possible. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thank you, uh, Michael, for uh, chatting with us. You can access the recording of this e-briefing and other e-briefings, including one I think we did in November uh, with you on uh, legal challenges to Obamacare. As Cato sponsors, of course, you are providing us with what we need, which is uh, your generous contributions to promote our work defending free markets, limited government, individual liberty, and peace. We'll talk to you again next time.